You're listening to the Manverse Podcast with your host, Tom Traplin, and this is session number 70. All right, so before we jump into the meat of this podcast, I wanted to let you know about something that I'm very excited about. The next major addition to the premium side of ManverseSaga.com is the Facebook Marketing Course. In this course, I'm going to show you how to build up your Facebook page, grow an online community, run Facebook ads that convert people into buyers, and even set up your own chatbot. All that so you can reach more people with your message, get more players in your events, and grow your game business. One thing that I'm really excited about, and I I know many of you have been asking about it as well, it's currently a work in progress, but if you are serious about growing your game store, it'd be great to have you as an early bird premium member. As a listener of the Manaverse podcast, I want to offer you a special opportunity to secure one of a limited number of lifetime premium memberships, only available to loyal listeners of the podcast. Head over to manaversaga.com forward slash deal and take me up on this. As an early bird premium member, you get direct access to me if you need to ask questions, and you get to help shape the content within the premium membership. That link again is manaversaga.com forward slash deal, D-E-A-L. If you've been considering joining as a premium member, this is your chance to become the core of the Manaversaga community. But the offer is limited. I'm going to be pulling the page down in a few days from the published date of this podcast. So one more time, that link is manaversaga.com forward slash deal, and I look forward to seeing you on the inside. So with that said, let us jump into this episode of the Manaverse Podcast. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Manaverse Podcast. This is the show where we talk about building profitable and successful game businesses. And today I have with me all my co-hosts. We're all here today. To my left, I'm just going to go around the screen and uh, introduce everybody. We have John Cobiello. Say hi. Hi, guys. And to my bottom left, diagonal to me, we have Wayne Middlestead. Everyone, shout out from Peterborough in Ontario, Canada, Dueling Grounds. Yeah, and just below me, we have Gary Sproul. Hello from Fort Collins, Colorado. How are you guys doing today? Tonight? Tonight. It's night. For once, it's night. For once, it's night time. We're doing this at a different time. Usually we get up early, bright and early to do this, but uh, we're switching it up, doing it during the evening. So how are you guys doing? Very good. How was your work days? Long. <laughs> good, still going. Okay, cool. So uh, Ours was gangbusters because uh, Destiny came out today. So did you get was, your shipment? We did. We actually got our shipment, which was uh, lovely. And uh, there's every indication that the Destiny day we had today may be better than our Exelon. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, can't say mine was that good yet, but I left at 5 and it starts at 6.30, so we'll see what happens. Oh, we had people lined up at the door. Oh, well, are you doing a launch event, though? Uh, tomorrow. Okay, gotcha. Okay. That's, I thought that's what you were referring to. Yeah. No, Sales. no, I'm talking about selling boxes. Gotcha. Yeah. Sales were good. pretty impressive. I didn't know Destiny was uh, so popular down there at Fort Collins. Uh, it's very popular in pockets, uh, pockets of the country. It's it's extremely popular, and uh, you know, people are uh, magic is um, not as popular as it once was. Hmm. Interesting. Do you think uh, Ixalan might be turning that around? By all accounts, this thing's going to be moving pretty hot. People are really into dinosaurs. Yes, dinosaurs versus pirates can't go wrong. Yeah. Uh, yes, I've had a lot of Magic players come back to me and say that they were they were not interested in the last set, but they are interested in this next coming set. We've had a little bit of uh, with the 
what is it? Um, oh, what's the next modern masters you want to be kind of thing? Oh, iconic, iconic masters. Iconic masters with the fact that they released a whole bunch of packs at uh, well, Hascon. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a little deflating of, of the current set coming up as far as people are already kind of asking me about the next set. And I'm like, well, hold on for a second, guys. There, there's one coming next next couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, X-Line's looking like a, a pretty strong set. Yeah, people are getting pretty excited. And it's interesting, too, that hot on the heels of Ixland, the powers that be at Wizards decided to announce a uh, another new development, something that we're going to be chatting about and probably something that most of the listeners have kind of heard about already and are maybe perhaps curious as to what it means. We're going to talk about MTG Arena. I don't know if, uh, how many, did you, you all three saw the stream, right? Nope. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I definitely saw it. It was, uh, it was big news and um, it was exciting to see because I, I remember we talked about uh, Magic the Gathering Arena coming up we had a show where we were talking about, oh, what are they going to do? Are they going to dumb it down? You know, they need to do something to compete with Hearthstone online. And uh, it turns out they they redesigned the whole online experience to look like Hearthstone, uh, except with the art-directed look of Magic Gathering. I think it looked slick. I think it looked amazing. Uh, the gameplay was really seamless. Uh, it was really interesting to watch. Way more interesting to watch than Magic Gathering online. So, um, yeah, that is for sure. That was awesome. And they featured the, the two new uh, Exelon decks, like starter decks, I guess. Uh, I, I guess they're releasing those instead of the Planeswalker decks. I don't know, but it was dinosaurs versus pirates, the two decks. Is it maybe um, like a dual deck, you know, or? I, I don't know. Well, that's actually a good question. It, they didn't say. They brought on two uh, relatively popular streamers that are known for playing Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like they picked the deck maybe because mm -hmm. it seemed relatively powerful. It seemed pretty well uh, constructed each deck on both sides, but it's very possible it could have been dual decks. They didn't specify if this was like a pre-con versus pre-con or did the each player choose which cards they wanted to play with. But it seemed like uh, it was an interesting stream because it, it looked uh, authentic. Like there were literally two people across the table playing each other. It wasn't set up in any way to play out a certain, certain direction. And it actually, it worked out very well. There was no, no blue screens, no, no random like shutdown of the internet at the time. It, it, it went off pretty seamlessly for Wizards, so I'll give them that. But the game itself, uh, it actually looks pretty impressive, I'd say, from a video gamer perspective. Yeah, we even had a custom arena they were playing in on the Ixalan plane, which uh, was really cool. They have uh, a lot of great little animations, um, not just great graphics, but little sound bites. Every time you play a Planeswalker, they have a thing they say when they come into play. When you activate either of their abilities, they'll say something when you trigger those abilities. So it's uh, it's quite entertaining to watch these little things happen, these little sounds, these little graphics. And you don't see like every little creature that they play like jump up out of the card and make a noise or something. It, it Usually it's like a big 7-7 seven, seven trampler or something significant go, comes into play, then it animates. And, That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think if it was just like a constant, it would get old after a while and you'd just... Yeah, no, it's, it's like a special little treat when, when yeah. you're done. It's like, it's like a player slamming down a card hard, you know, boom! <laughs> yeah, they actually, that's one of the things they mentioned. They want to emphasize those like top deck moments and really like make them impressive, especially for uh, streaming. And this is uh, kind of like their attempt to make uh, like their, they make esports a thing, right? Because like they, they want to get in on that. And they know that uh, like the Pro Tour does not get the same kind of viewership that a proper esport does. And most 
Magic streamers don't even come close to the same kind of viewership that even like the, the smallest Hearthstone streamer can pull in, right? So they want to make it so that it's more visually interesting and it really emphasizes the excitement of the game. And I think they did a pretty good job of that. Yeah, it includes all the gameplay, all the mechanics. Um, so I don't see any reason for them to continue with Magic the Gathering Online. Unless... Let's do one. Unless... One. Oh, fair enough. But uh, um, like, like I'd see them switching it over eventually if, if they're including all the sets and going back to all the sets. But they didn't say anything about that. They just had the most current cards. So I'm, I'm wondering if they're just going to stick to like the standard format and move well, forward or if they're going to go back to maybe modern or whatever. I don't know. But well, what we know now is essentially that it's just they want to focus on standard and uh, sealed and limited. That's all they want. They, they want to move up from standard. They have stated basically that uh, Magic Online has the entire category or catalog of cards from you know, the beginning to end, and they want to keep it that way. That's going to be like for the, uh, I guess, the hyper-competitive people or the, or the people who want to experience the older formats. Magic Online is going to be for them, whereas people who want to play the new, new formats going forward, that's, they want them to play Arena. Although, which is interesting because they're also going to support Standard continually on Magic Online as well. So for some reason, they're doing development simultaneously on two different platforms for like the exact same stuff, the exact same product. Yeah, and the question there would be, is, is, is the target audience a new audience? In other words, are you trying to use the game as a way to get new recruits into the game? Because obviously, and I don't play either, right? But it, it sounds to me from listening to you guys, the Magic Online, when we did that show before, it's just, it, it's boring. It's like playing Magic card, then I'll just play Magic card. Um, but this has, so if you're a vested player, you know the mechanics, you know the game. It's just a way to play the game at two o'clock in the morning when you maybe there's not a hobby store open near you. I'm sure there are hobby stores open at two o'clock in the morning, but you know, um, so that might be the intent there. We're using this as a recruiting platform. We're using this to bring people into the hobby. And if they really want the full experience, they go to Magic Online. I think that is probably the case. And like we were talking about before we hit the record button and started uh, started the show was that uh, originally Wizards had Magic Duels and that was their way of introducing people who've never heard of Magic but played video games to the game itself. And then those people would eventually move into the game stores and start playing physically. Uh, but they recently discontinued duels. They basically announced that we're not going to continue development. Like you can still play it. They're still accessible, but uh, they're not going to add new sets like they've been doing. And it looks like MTG arena is going to replace them. basically they're replacing duels. And the, uh, the other thing that we forgot to mention was that the, uh, the purchase mechanism is different. Right, so Magic Online reflects Magic in the real world almost exactly. Right, like you buy booster packs for almost the exact same retail price you would buy a physical booster pack. You buy tickets, enter events, like you pay physical money for all this stuff. And then uh, the trading mechanism is basically the exact same way, but you know it's a little bit different because of bots and a digital platform and all that stuff. But uh, Arena is going to be modeled on what seems to be like Hearthstone. So it's basically it's free to play. You don't have to pay anything to to be introduced to the game. You'll probably start out with a, a basic uh, like introductory collection. And it sounds like they want to do the same way that uh, Blizzard has done it in that you are rewarded for in-game in play. So you get like in-game currency just for, for playing games and winning and completing quests or whatever, or missions or whatever they want to call them. And you can use that to increase your collection, but then they'll also have uh, uh, buy options, basically. You, you can spend real money to accelerate the process. And that's essentially how Hearthstone works. So it makes sense that this would be targeted towards people who maybe never played the game or want an easy way to get introduced to it. Or to bring all the Hearthstone players that left Magic back to Magic. It might. It might. And there was a lot of them, too. 
Did they yeah. talk about, is this like a, just a PC-based platform or are they doing it for, you know, iOS and Android or? At least right now it's PC only. Okay. That's what they announced on the streams that the only support, the only platform they're going to release it on is PC. But uh, they said it's built on Unity, which allows them, it's a game engine that allows them to develop for multiple platforms. So like that was one of the, the problems they had with Magic Online was that when they originally developed it, it was built in a way that it was so patched together and and badly done that there was no other platform they could develop it on. They couldn't port it over to anything else because just the code was, it only worked in a very specific operating system that was PC. So that's all it's been for a long time. Whereas it looks like Arena might be able to break into the iOS store and that kind of thing, which is one of the major differentiators for, for Hearthstone. It's like, you know, you'd think a card game would work very, would work very well on a touchscreen, right? Like it just seems to make sense, but Magic Online was never able to, to make that happen. So looks like they're finally doing that right. Well, and it's not, I mean, the touchscreen option, I mean, let's face it, 95% of laptops out there nowadays are touchscreen enabled. So, you know, it doesn't matter, even if it's a PC platform, having that functionality seems to, you want that in there. Yeah, it seems the way technology is going, it seems to be that way. But the question is, or one of the questions is, uh, you know, what, well, what does this mean for the players? That's part of, part of the, uh, the hubbub, right? People are really excited or they're potentially terrified of the implications of what arena means for their, you know, people have possibly spent thousands of dollars on their magic online collection because it's been out there for 15 years, right? So people have invested a lot of value into this thing. And if it just suddenly goes away, you know, that's probably going to piss a lot of people off. So uh, a lot of players are concerned that magic online might be disappearing at some point in the future. I don't know if they would intentionally do that, but what the implication that, we're, that they're saying here is that eventually people are just not going to play that and not play the online and play the other one, basically. I mean, is that what we're hinting at? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. That might be what uh, Wizards wants five years down the future. That's, hope, that's what they're hoping for, that people will naturally migrate towards the new platform. And hopefully, like if they do build in a way to uh, support your collection over at some point, that would probably be the uh, the best solution for everybody because then you'd feel like your invested value wasn't completely wasted and wizards could you know carry on with the player base that they already have but uh, also what will this do to uh, to impact you know like the game businesses that are built around magic will it change anything for them i, I don't see I, I don't see i guess i can't measure that right i don't know how many players i potentially may have lost the magic online if any I don't know if I get more players because they're playing online and then they're like, man, I feel like playing with a real opponent in front of a table kind of situation. I mean, not that you're not playing with not a, I understand there's another person at the end of the line, but it doesn't feel the same as when you, you're face to face kind of situation. Um, I, I don't know if we're ever going to get the answer to that, except with, with time. I mean, if 10 years down the line, there's nobody playing magic in my store, I guess I'll know the answer. Right. Um, yeah. But, but at the same token, we've had this kind of same exact thing. The closest thing I can equate it to is world of Warcraft. Right. Everybody was just saying, this is going to kill D&D. Nobody's going to play D&D in stores, right? Nobody's going to play D&D at home. Everybody's just going to log into front of a computer and play World of Warcraft. I'm sure that was true for some people. I mean, but Gary, how's D&D how's in your store right now? Roaming. Yeah. Wayne? Oh, yeah. We, we can't keep up with it. It's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. So I, I think there are different experiences. And I don't know if it means that one replaces the other or it complements the other or two different types of people will just play the two different types of game. Um, 
That's the closest thing I can think of is, is, is World of Warcraft ending D&D or, sorry, any pen and paper RPG. And that hasn't happened. And it's, I mean, when did WoW come out? It's been 10 Long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I also, I can't measure, you know, any of this, but I can say anecdotally that to my knowledge, I have never had anyone ever come into the store and all the time they've been open and say, yeah, I've been, I learned how to play magic on this online computer game and now I want to start playing the card game. They've never said that. The only thing they ever say is my friends play. My friends play, so I want to play. Now, if this online system can allow more people to see people playing and perceive that these, you know, the, the Twitch stream people are, you know, that they perceive as their friends, that they're going to want to play too. Will they want to play the online game or will they come into the store? I don't know. But it will certainly raise the visibility of the game. That, that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I think anything that increases the visibility of Magic, anything that makes it more popular is inevitably just going to increase sales. Magic's going to get bigger. I mean, there was a bump after they did um, the um, Magic Gathering duels. And I think there's going to be another bump with the, the arena. And, and I think it's going to be picked up more on Twitch and streaming because it is so uh, visually stimulating to watch as opposed to Magic Online. So I think it's going to be a positive thing for the game overall. And it's, I, I think it's ludicrous thinking any video game or digital version of anything is going to replace uh, uh, hard copy um, paper versions of, of any games. You know, you can play board games on the computer too, but <laughs> there's, there's nothing that's ever going to replace the in real life gaming experience ever. Yeah. And, and with the board games, I have a little bit of personal experience. There are times where I, you know, I'll play Ticket to Ride on my phone because you know, I have five minutes and I'll do it, but it doesn't mean I, I stop playing board games or the ticket to ride sales are somehow slumped all of a sudden. I mean, we still sell it. So yeah, I don't know if the impact is minimal, but I kind of feel like it's more, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a positive impact rather than a negative. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking is probably going to be the case as well is that uh, it's going to be an overall benefit to the business in general, just because of like what you said, the visibility will go up. People will be uh, more exposed to the idea of the game. They'll see what it's like and they'll be more interested in actually going and trying it out themselves. And that's also, I think, one of the major goals for Wizards when, they're, when they do finally release this. Right now it's pre-alpha. They're just getting into their, their beta phase. So it's going to be a while before it's going to be uh, completely widely available for anyone to try out. But uh, what they want to do is connect the game to Paper Magic. They want to amplify it. They want to have them work together, basically, so that... Uh, like if you want, just so the listeners know, if you want to get access to the beta for MTG Arena, you can sign up at playmtgarena.com to put your name in the hat to see if you might get asked to try it out. But if you want to get a little bit of an extra chance of getting, getting accepted early, you can play in one of the Ixalan pre-releases. So they've already kind of linked the real world experience to the digital game. And I guess what they want to do is make it so that uh, either it goes both ways or it goes one way. They want to make it so that maybe if you open up something really exceptional, you know, like in a booster pack, kind of like a, I don't know if you, don't know if you guys remember, uh, like the WoW TCG. Yeah. Right. They used to have loot cards. Oh, right. Yeah. And those things actually became like highly sought after and, and became really popular and it got people to play the game, but also play the video game. So it kind of had a bit of an overlap. It was, a good way to connect the two. And I think Wizards is probably going to adopt something similar, if not just like straight up take that idea and just start adding arena cards to the booster packs. I can physically attest that with the WoW cards, 
I would say 50% of my buyer, well, let's go more like probably 75% of my buyers were interested in loot cards. They didn't play the physical game. They were just chasing the loot card. I don't think that's going to be the case for Magic because you're already catering to a playing audience, right, for the most part. Um, yeah, I think but, so. But it, there's definitely, I can attest that that in itself is successful in driving sales of physical copies. If they decide to start putting rewards in the boosters for the digital game and vice versa, right, show up at this pre-release and get a reward in the digital um, I can see a lot of cross-pollinating going on there in, in, a, in a good way, too. I mean, I was going to come down and play in the pay release. Now I got something extra for doing it. I didn't spend anything extra for doing it. I just I showed up. I played my game. Wow. Now I can keep, I don't know, I have a special hat in the game, you know what I mean, kind of situation. Yeah, yeah that's usually, usually the case. It's not normally like, oh, you get some really cool rare that you can only get in one particular place and you can only get it here and it's really, you need it to play competitively. It's usually like you get a, yeah. you know, a silly costume for your character to wear or, or a special avatar or something like that. It's it usually has no impact on the game. Just, it's just graphic fluff, but it's fun. And then people apparently still value that. So it's interesting how Pokemon does it too. You know, every Pokemon booster pack uh, has a digital code card or digital code on in the, in the booster pack. And uh, you can play the Pokemon trading card game online for free and you can redeem these codes to get cards or packs or something. So there's already, uh, that's already happening with, with Pokemon. And I think they're doing a good job with that. So I can see them doing similar things with the uh, magic and arena. Did wizards announce any kind of monetization scheme with this or did they just talk about the technology? Well, they, they basically said that it's freemium. They, that, that's kind of what they alluded to, is that uh, you can buy products, you can, you can probably buy booster packs in the game for real money. That's probably how they're going to monetize it. But you don't have to. That's, that was something that they stated, is that they made it very clear that right. it is free to play. You can play it for free as long as you feel like, but you can buy you know, in-game purchase products to uh, make it go a little bit faster. Did they talk about doing drafts or sealed events? Yes, that was the one thing that they did mention. They are going to support drafts and sealed specifically alongside standard. How they're going to do it, we don't know yet. Like that's, that's still, who knows? Because that'll depend on how they want to price everything, right? Like if, right. if they follow the MTGO model and they just say, oh yeah, four bucks a pack, here you go. And just, that's what they're going to do. I think they're going to be very disappointed in the results because people, well, there was no particular reason to do it that way, right? Hopefully they do something a little more approachable a little more fair for a completely digital product. We'll see. They, they were pretty tight-lipped on that kind of thing. I guess they wanted to wait for the beta and wait for some like player feedback to really decide on how they're going to approach that. Yeah, I wonder if they'll be able to support multiplayer too. Because I mean, the, the way it was set up, it's very one versus one, the, the graphics and everything. I, do they do multiplayer in Hearthstone? I don't know. Nope. I don't yeah. know. So maybe it's only a two versus two player experience. Maybe that's another reason it would differentiate between Magic the Gathering Online and Magic the Gathering Arena. Well, yeah, because it's not, I mean, if they want to focus on standard, you, you know, kind of in a one-to-one -one situation, basically. So. Mm -hmm. True. I would probably, I would doubt, I would doubt that they'll probably go towards multiplayer because it seems like they want to focus on fast case or fast paced gameplay. That was something they mentioned specifically. That's what they wanted to replicate. They want to make it, you know, visual, virtual games, they need to be quick, right? So like, especially if you're playing on your phone, if that's something that they want to be ultimately uh, graduate to, you need to be able to do it quickly. So they want games to be rapid, fast. They made all the animations quick and choppy or, or quick and smooth. They didn't make them choppy. They made it uh, clippy. They want you to be able to pick up the game and play a game really quickly. And that's one of the things that uh, has held Magic Online back for a long time is that uh, it's so slow. 
like you have to you're going through all the stages and the stops and the phases and like you have to f2 f4 all the time so it's it's a very like it's like you're playing chess it's a very paced game whereas this is just like boom 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 they want you to make it as quick as possible you actually have to turn on a mode you know, that they called like full control to be able to like counter something or play an instant on your opponent's turn otherwise it just it goes through everything like automatically the way that duels used to do that uh, they wanted to make it so that you didn't have to think about the phases as much. It just kind of like played that, that part of the game for you because 90% of the time you don't need to care. So we'll see. We'll see. Unless you're a combo player or a control player or you, well, yeah. you're a player who um, maximizes the use of the clock. Is there a clock? Is there a timer? <gasps> Good question, actually. I remember seeing a timer. Because that is a strategy. I think they mentioned a timer during the interview. I didn't see one like on the gameplay itself, but uh, I believe they mentioned a thing about how like they, they, there will be a clock, right? There will be a timer so that you can't just take forever and time somebody out by basically being more patient than them. Right. But uh, there will be a thing that makes you move your gameplay along. But I guess they wanted to build in a mechanism so that you can save your time. I remember hearing them say this. Hmm. Whereas like, in the, like on Magic Online, you have 30 minutes to play your turn and every second that it's like your priority starts ticking down your clock. Oh, so you're constantly clock. switching like back clock. and forth. Hmm? Like a chess clock basically. Exactly like a chess clock. Whereas uh, in an arena that what they want to do is not quite the same thing. They want to make it so that if you have, or like you have like, I guess, you know, 45 or 50 seconds or some arbitrary number for your turn. And then if you take less than that, it's added to your bank so that you can take your turns quickly for the turns that don't really matter that much. You don't have to do a lot of thinking and you can save up that time for the turns where you really do need to consider your moves and figure things out. So it's, they're trying to reward you for a quick play again by saying, okay, you can get more time later on. You can make it, make your decisions more effectively and more patiently later on if you are quick for the most of the game. So there must be a clock at some point, there must be some timer built in, but again, it's like all of these things are completely up in the air right now. Right. Nothing's hammered down. They could completely change the, all the graphics, all the gameplay. Like, it's just pre-alpha. Right? There's so many <clears> things <throat> that could change before it gets uh, commercially released. I don't know if you guys, just as an <laughs> anecdotal thing, do you know what uh, Heroes of the Storm is? No, no, no. no. It's, it's another Blizzard product. It's another Blizzard, Blizzard oh. game that uh, was released like three years ago. I want to say two or three years ago. And I remember playing in the alpha and how, like, how raw and how bad it was. And seeing how quickly it became like this polished, full, mm -hmm. fleshed out game. But it changed so much in those, that like six months where they first started introducing players to it, when they started uh, bringing the wider group of people into it. Like it, the chances of Arena looking like it does now are pretty slim. So who knows what it'll look like once it's out there. Uh, the important thing, it sounds, all the feedback I'm getting is people are excited about it, which means if they're excited in this stage, hopefully they'll stay excited and even more hyped up about it later so we'll see and i mean most of the articles i've seen online talking about it uh are all generally positive like everybody seems to be pretty impressed by it and uh you know there's one article that's like magic Ga the gathering's uh answer to hearthstone and you know the obvious which is the obvious one and yeah everybody you know it's very positive very, very positive reviews and articles about it that i've seen that's what i've been seeing too a lot of people writing articles, praising it, saying it looks good, looks like they finally did something right in the sense that people are not disappointed right off the bat, which is pretty good. But uh, what's interesting, I don't know if you guys looked into the, any of the comments. Like I, there's, <laughs> the comments of most of them, people are 
not happy. Either they're like, oh, this is just a ripoff of Hearthstone. They're like disappointed that Wizards did something right, or they're concerned about their magic collections on Moto or something like that. So, you know, are, are magic players people, love to complain. Are internet play people ever happy though? <laughs> are you ever happy on the internet? I mean, um, you know, so it could also be an indicator of how bad magic online was, right? I mean, it was like, look, this is an improvement, we'll take it kind of situation. But uh, <laughs> it's, again, we'll see where it goes. Indeed, indeed. We will see, hopefully, good things in the future. We'll keep an eye on it. I think more people are, are more worried about their, their card values uh, declining because of Iconic Masters. You know, mana drain, whoa, you know, they're dipping into that reserve list again. Yeah, that... Was that mana drain on the reserve list? I thought it wasn't. I thought that mana drain was one of the cards that they could reprint, and they just kind of like, oh, we'll reprint it at some point in the future when I feel like yeah, it's a good I idea. I thought that was one of those cards, you know. <laughs> I would think so too, but like, they said that they wouldn't do that because like reserve list is like their sacred cow, right? Their wizards yeah, will never uh, go back yeah, on that. Maybe I should have researched that. I just, I just made an assumption. I'm gonna Google. Yeah, that. I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> no, like, it does seem like something that would be it's on the, the reserve sacred list, cow until they decide that it's not. Well, yeah. At least right now, they're they're pretty hard on that position that they're like never getting never getting rid of it. It's never going to happen. Gonna, I think we're going to have this conversation again in when is it uh, the the uh, anniversary edition comes out? What February something like that? <laughs> I think that's uh, we're going to have this conversation again. Yeah, maybe. Interesting. I don't know. I'm. I think I'm personally on the side of. I think it's a bad idea. I think it should just keep it. The the list. Yeah, the we, list. We gotta have some. Um, I mean, magic. Part of the component of magic is that sort of like it's an investment um, kind of idea, right? And if you start taking that away too much, there's already complaints about too many reprints and things like that. I understand the other side of it. I want to play modern. I want to play, you know, legacy and vintage and all this stuff, and I can't get to it, right? Kind of situation. So it's there's got to be a balance there somewhere. But if they go too far overboard and they just lose the idea that like my cards will in general go up in value, they're gonna have a bigger problem on their and they would by just you know sorry we're sticking to our guns to this hmm. yeah i'm just i'm just establishing that that mandarin is not on there so it's not on the reserve list that was just me making an assumption that's okay, okay. i'm sure there are a lot of people who thought the same thing it's, it feels close the wizards just kind of snuck one in there like oh we'll just try and see what happens see, Nobody if, see if anyone notices because there's a lot of stupid cards on the reserve list like sedge troll and Rock Hydra, you know, there's that <laughs> wouldn't make any difference to whether they reprinted them or not. Or Fork, ooh, was that like a dollar now? <laughs> yeah, well, they kind of like functionally reprinted Fork a couple of times, right? But well, uh, yeah, no, I think the reserve list just generally protects the value of the game for the most part. And I don't think it, I, I think it hurts people less than it would if it were gone. I think that's kind of. The position where it is now but maybe yeah. we'll see maybe like at some point in the future maybe wizards will pull the trigger on that and be like okay let's let's see what happens guys but, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know i think the functional reprint you just said i mm -hmm. think that would be the way they would do it you think that's how they'd get around it technically they've they've I mean, done similar things yeah functional functional reprints would be the way to get around that if they ever wanted to reintroduce any of those cards because they made the game better or they were actually a decent card or whatever and not too broken or, you know, Wizards was losing money and they need to rake in the cash by reprinting dual lands or something. 
Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but that scenario, I don't see it really. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't see it either. So, should we well, talk about our next topic? The bigger problem for us is not the value of singles, it's the value of sealed product. Yeah, that, mm. that's definitely an issue and a half. So, and I don't, so I'm torn a little bit about that because from their perspective, I mean, should they do anything about it? Realistically speaking, you know, if I was publishing the stuff, I'd be like, we're selling it, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, and I get our perspective too, which is like, sure, but <laughs> how much longer can we kind of, can you keep on going with this product this way? You know, so, I, it's, yeah, sticky subject. It, I mean, we don't know what their numbers are. Are they, right. I mean, anecdotally, retailers all talk to each other and we all say that we're ordering less product than we've ever ordered in years. Yeah. Um, is Wizard seeing that? We don't know. Well, but my question would be, is Wizard seeing that they're selling the same or more to more retailers, right? right. But right. we're all lowering less than we used to. I mean, yeah. um, I don't know. That's, that's a Wizards thing. They know we don't. Yeah, they, they don't like to share their info for the most part. They, well, they, I mean, they have to report to Hasbro, but it's pretty carefully. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the numbers aren't transparent. No. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's, you're always free to sit in. It's a publicly traded company, so you can definitely take a look at their meeting minutes and all that other fun stuff. But it's pretty dry, and you're not going to get a lot of info out of it. You'll learn a lot about Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So should we talk about our next topic? Sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right, so the other thing that we wanted to chat about was this, uh, I guess, another kind of sticky subject. We're gonna, something that's kind of come up recently and has been like a, well, a problem forever, basically. But uh, counterfeit games, counterfeit board games in particular. So why don't uh, you wanted to talk about this, John? So let's, I'll let you walk it in. Sure. So uh, there's, I don't know if it's very recent, but it's been going on for a while. And we all know the problems with counterfeiting magic cards, right? I mean, that's been going on for several years. And the problem is, is they've been getting good with the magic stuff. Now, Wizards has made some steps to make him harder to counterfeit, but it's still happening. Um, what we've seen now is the proliferation of actual board games. And in particular, the ones that are getting hit pretty hard are uh, games that don't have a strong, like, uh, component of, like, physical pieces. So just card games, right? Those are relatively easy to, to counterfeit and do. And they, they run the gamut of spectrum from like very, very poorly made counterfeits, right? I mean, literally printed on t-shirt paper, hardly looks like the original um, to, you can fool just about anybody with this game. It's missing maybe the manufacturer's logo in the right spot kind of situation. Um, and it's become more and more an issue for a lot of uh, the publishers to the point where uh, it's affecting us as a business because we keep getting bots sending us letters going, you know, uh, counterfeit item, blah, 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 X, Y, prove that you've actually got it from a good source, you know, kind of situation. Um, and it's also difficult for them um, because it's hard to get a hold on these things. By the time they even find out about it, that person's changed names, gone to a different account and started selling under a different account. Um, and it's also a problem for the consumer. I mean, we've, um, we haven't personally experienced it, but I've talked to several retailers who've had customers come in with a board game going, hey, I bought this game and I understand. It doesn't look like the one that I saw here in the store, right? Um, subtle differences or like I said, really, really blatant, horrible, ugh. how did you pass this as authentic? But when you're online, that's a little bit easier to do, right? You can list, I don't know, Catan for $20 and 
people will know the difference until they get it at home, open it up and go, what the heck is this? You know? So yeah, I don't know. Gary, have you had anybody come into your store with that or anything like that? Um, I haven't had anyone bring in a counterfeit game, but uh, we're definitely hearing more people talking about them. And uh, as a retailer, I'm starting to see that it's easier and easier to, uh, to get them, that it's, um, it's one of those things where they're, they're seeking out retailers to go, hey, these, this stuff is available. Wayne, how about you in Canada? Yeah, I, I've, been, I've been approached by uh, emails from China <laughs> that are like, hey, we're a new distribution company and we got Cards Against Humanity and this and that and stuff that I can't get. And, and, Incidentally, uh, Cards Against Humanity, one of the big reasons why they're extremely selective and picky is they were one of the ones that were hit first by this, by this problem. I mean, I mean, there's, I don't want to diss on the game, but there's really not much to reproducing it, right? I mean, you no. take, and you, you don't even have to come up with the jokes. They're there for you. You just take the jokes that they have, print them, and you're good to go. Um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who deals a lot in Disney memorabilia. And for Disney, the pins in particular have become a real problem to the point where the factories that officially make the Disney pins were doing print runs on their own of the Disney pins and just selling them. That's, that's, it's not a counterfeit item. It's that same exact correct yeah. item. It's, it's the same factory. Yeah. Disney has nothing to do with it. It's an overnight print run of whatever, and they sell it on Amazon. They sell it on eBay. It just... When you look at it, the perspective from the guy in China is like, hey, this is good money. I'm just going to keep doing it. Um, it's gotten to the point now where they have official Disney people in these factories who take the plates at night and lock them up. So literally nobody else has access to these until the official Disney guy comes in, unlocks it, and goes on the thing, and they go. You know? so yeah, well, I mean, they had that problem when Upper Deck was doing Yu-Gi-Oh, right? They were right. printing extra sheets of, of really rare cards and, and profiting off those. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I heard it referred to online as the gray market where they're actually doing overnight shifts to print, you know, not officially sold games so they can just take them and sell them themselves online. Um, and, uh, but of, of all the online research I was doing about this, the earliest one, earliest posts I, I saw of someone complaining about board games, counterfeit board games, receiving one was 2013. So that's about four years ago. So this has definitely been going on for, for several years, for sure. And it's affecting a lot of games. It's not just the card games, too. I mean, uh, Settlers of Catan, um, Trail of House on the Hill, Ticket to Ride, Splendor, Dominion, uh, Takedo. There's a, there's a bunch of them on there that are uh, the, the Seven Wonders. Uh, they actually had – there was one, one big uh, – uh, article about not article but someone posted um side-by-side -side comparisons of uh of seven wonders uh counterfeit and the real one and showing all the little differences and, and, and whatnot and you know you can you can definitely tell the two apart if, if you're looking close enough they do tend to use all cheaper materials unless it's a gray market item where they're actually using the, the printers that make the actual game um, but yeah i mean most of this stuff is coming through amazon from, from what I've been seeing. And uh, Amazon is apparently kind of slow to deal with it. I mean, they're more concerned about people on their site and selling things and getting their cut. Um, and, you know, to have to chase down all these, you know, counterfeiter sellers is, I guess, kind of a hassle. And um, at least that's, that's, that's again, from the research that people say they've been kind of slow to kick them out of the, the system but i mean then they can just start a new account and start selling again so yeah that's i think the greater difficulty is literally tracking down and when you're dealing with international law and all that good stuff some of these countries are not 
as strict or as in, they don't enforce it as much as they do here, maybe here in the US. So um, we, we've also seen the opposite where it doesn't take much for another seller to report you as a counterfeiter or something like that. And then you're sitting there spilling out sheets and sheets of forms going, nah, it's coming from this distributor. These are our products. This is where we're getting them from, right? This is the actual invoice. So um, there's a little bit of some really weirdness going on with it right now. Um, the other troubling thing is from a consumer perspective, there's those people that get it and they understand that, okay, okay, so you can get a counterfeit game for cheaper. Um, and then there's people that don't get it and don't care. And I don't know if it, it eventually is going to sink in. The problem with this is if, if the publishers aren't making money, forget us. So let's just pretend like this middle tier doesn't exist and the retailer isn't there. Like, you still have a problem when the publisher is not making any money off of these things because the pipeline shuts off. Eventually you lose the creative juices that are creating these new games and counterfeit or not, they're gonna move on to something else that makes money for us. And fundamentally the whole industry has a risk of potentially collapsing on itself. And that's the thing that probably scares me the most. Um, I don't see an effective way to deal with this right now. And, and I know they're working hard at it. Um, and in the end though, it's, it's gotta be a consumer approach too of going, look, I want this game, I understand the ticket to ride is X price and I'm paying for an original product and I'm happy to be paying for that original product. If, it, if that mentality is not there, all the counterfeiting fighting in the world, you know, will come to nothing. Right, well, the, the, um, there is one company so far uh, called Delarue that has come up with a, a brand protection technology where they can uh, print the logo of the company on, on the game uh, in such a way that it's, uh, it's 3D imaging on, on the label so that you can, as you turn the box, you can see the side of the, the logo and you turn and you see the front and you see the other side. Um, and it's, uh, you know, very, very hard to replicate apparently. Well, this is the only one company that does it and it's just this is a very specific technology. So, um, and there's a couple, uh, couple of uh, board game companies that are already on board using that. Uh, what was it? <coughs> Add Magic and Breaking Games. So they're, you know, just like how Magic the Gathering added little hollows to their cards to prevent counterfeiting. It looks like there's going to be an option for board games. Another expense to add. <laughs> yeah, and my, my concern would be, again, the, the customer itself, the, himself values the original game. You know what I mean? They're actually interested in like, look, I want to buy an original product. I'm sure that it's the right one. That would be brick and mortar stores, right? <laughs> it's better for brick and mortar stores. Like, we're not gonna sell counterfeits in our store. People will be able to see the product in real life and know sure. that it's real. You know, there's definitely a risk for buying products online. Almost any time, any product, right? Yeah. That, it well, depends on the the uh, the seller, right? You never well, know who you're necessarily dealing with. Unless you do know exactly who you're dealing with. There's a, there's an also another thing that's sort of happening a little bit now, which is you basically create an account on eBay, on Amazon, or whatever or not, and you pick a fairly popular, currently out of print game that goes for stupid money. You list it for normal money and just collect X amount of dollars and disappear kind of situation. We've seen a little bit of that happening. It's not a counterfeiting thing, but it's literally, hey, I know this thing is hot right now. And I know people are going to jump on it because I have a normal price when it's like twice retail going on right now. So there's a little bit of buyer beware there, obviously. And I, one of the problems we see sometimes because we deal with the proliferation of 
the industry into more of the mundane crowd, right? So becoming more uh, just popular culture. Some of those customers don't necessarily understand that if that ticket to ride is $20 instead of $50, there might not be something right with that, right? We come across as like, oh, this place is a ripoff. And I, it, it, it's really difficult for me to go, is it somebody that's clearancing their stuff out because they don't want to carry it anymore? Is it a company that went out of business, a store that's just trying to get rid of the stuff that's in the storage unit? Or is it just somebody going, man, I'm making counterfeit copies of this game at $20? I, it's, it's an issue in that sense, too, that it devalues the, the, the value of the real product and people can't tell the difference. They don't know that literally there's a physical difference, right? This is printed on t-shirt paper. This is printed on cardstock. I mean, there's so many people selling at such ridiculous prices that, that a low price isn't an obvious indication of too good to be true. And I hate to go back to, you know, talking about the magic boxes, but there is a complete loss of what was the MSRP for a box of magic. It's difficult for literally for most magic players to understand that $145 is what the manufacturer suggested retail price is for that box when you see it everywhere at 90, 100 or whatever, and I just, you lose this, that concept of what it is. Yeah, I'd love to see a map for magic. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably never gonna happen, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. No. I don't see it. It's, I don't think Wizards has an interest in that. I mean, I wanna talk for them, but it's it's been decades. I think something could have been done a while back. Yeah, well, I think uh, Wizards is probably happy with the situation as it is for the most part. Otherwise, yeah. they'd probably do something about it, right? Well, that was the question before. Is it, are they making the same amount of sales and just spreading it among more sources or, you know? It's also a question of like how many people are buying booster boxes. If we're talking about just like sealed booster boxes and cases and stuff. How many people are buying from the store and how many people are buying from like online retailers, right? Because if you only see uh, brick and mortar locations, okay, yeah, your, your sales are probably lower overall than they were a couple of years ago. But how many people are now selling or how many people are now buying exclusively through like eBay and Amazon and stuff like that. Like how many are only going through digital channels and how many are going through the brick and mortar? And what does that look like uh, in the totality of everything, right? I would expect there's probably a lot of, a lot of boxes being sold online that aren't uh, kind of being accounted for by like uh, retailers because they don't necessarily see the, the handoff. Yeah, there's also a lot of retailers that are perfectly happy with $2 a box. I'm not, yeah. I didn't say it right off the bat, but you know, our tier is just as much to blame for this kind of a situation as, as you know, the online discounter. I mean, it's not like stores themselves don't do it, even in store. I mean, teach his own. I mean, uh, for us, it's a much easier solution to, this is a red sea. I'm going to find my little piece of blue sea and try to figure out what else can I make money on and not worry too much about like, oh my God, what do I do? Magic is dead. It's not dead. But as far as it is, it where it was as a revenue stream for us several years ago, absolutely not. And, and singles is a different thing. I consider that a completely different beast. You either have it or you don't. You know, I mean, it's um, and in general, the singles market is a little more stable. Is a little more. There's more profit. It seems to me, from what I've seen from my aspect of it, than there is definitely a seal product. I'm just sure, Gary, you're in the same boat. But. Absolutely right. And when absolutely. when I was at your store, I know I saw singles, so I'm sure you. Well, any yeah, that's that's where you make the most money in singles, and I, I think there's a lot of online uh, stores that are buying massive amounts of boxes to uh, create inventories of singles to sell online. Um, I, right now, it's 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 become like the sealed product is your loss leader, and the singles are where you make the money. And if you're not doing singles in your store, you're not going to make much money off magic unless you're the only shop around for like 100 miles and you don't get internet or shipping. <laughs> 
And I mean, and that goes back to the, the problem of counterfeiting, though, will affect you even in that market, right? So, I mean, if you, if you start seeing counterfeit cards, it's easy to flood the market with. I would imagine they would, you would stay away from something like a Black Lotus or something crazy that's going to be scrutinized, but there's plenty of mid-tier cards that can be replicated relatively easily. Um, well, maybe not so much anymore until they figure out how to do it. But uh, so I don't know what the solution to this is. I know that the publishers are working hard because it affects them big time. Um, yeah. You know, our struggle, my struggle at the store is literally to try to educate as much as possible. That um, this is a phenomenon. This exists. When you buy a product, look at what you're buying and be, be careful what you're buying. And know that they, a lot of people when I tell them, no, man. There's such a thing as counterfeit Catan. They look at me like I'm crazy, but I'm like, no, it's worth the effort to somebody to literally duplicate this, this item. And then that means making little wood houses and little pieces of wood that are roads. They'll go through that effort and do it. Um, it must be worth their time, I'm guessing. Well, like, like we were saying before, I guess, you know, it's, it's kind of like, is a question if it's could be called a counterfeit because it's technically if it's being made by the same manufacturer, it's not exactly counterfeit in the sense that like someone's not making it in their basement but it is still, you know, not uh, fully licensed, right? Sure. So like the, you know, the, those products, you'd think a counterfeit game like Catan would be hard to replicate just because the cost would be prohibited or prohibitive, right? Whereas like card games, not so much. That's why card games are the most vulnerable. If you can make it with the pieces that are already being produced by the game manufacturer itself, then, then the cost is low enough for it to be worthwhile. So there's a, yeah, there's a, a very plausible reason as to why these might be flooding the market out of a particular area in the, of the world. Yeah. And the only ones can do something, well, that's between the, the publisher and their factory. <laughs> and I don't know how they're going to regulate. How they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I don't have that particular headache. We're trying to figure that one out. But. So it's more a matter of the fact that it's not, uh, it's not game stores are getting fake games from their distributors. It's not like somebody is infiltrating the supply chain and providing fake product. That's not the issue. No. It's the fact that customers are getting access to subpar, sub-tier product that wasn't, uh, wasn't produced by the gen, like the authentic producer, the authentic manufacturer. And that is going to eventually cut into, uh, it's going to cut into retail sales of games, obviously, but it's also going to basically kill the business in the long run, right? Well, left on check, yes. I mean, right. I mean, fundamentally, the publisher is not making any money on that. The distributor is not making any money on that. The retailer is not making any money on that. The customers either happy with the post-production or counterfeit, whatever, or, or he isn't. But in the end, that's, the, the problem is, yes, this chain of, of revenue is gone. These people got to pay rent every month. <laughs> the, the, the game designer wants to be paid for his, his efforts. Um, so, yeah, eventually that faucet shuts off. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think you're right. I mean, it definitely seems like more of an issue of, like, the ability of these counterfeiters to get on the market directly to the consumer is the, the issue because in the end, we, we I'm not seeing counterfeit copies of games coming through my distributors. That's that's not no. happening to me. I, that's, yeah. Uh, unless consciously, I guess, like Wayne got approached by friendly neighborhood Chinese publisher, they are trying to sell you directly something. In general, I think I deal with a couple of Chinese manufacturers, but they make their own product. They're not selling me something that, is licensed by somebody else or something like that. So. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky, tricky world to navigate, and it's hard to know exactly for sure if your stuff's legit or not. Especially as the counterfeits get more uh, sophisticated. And, and the sad thing is, I think it affects the Chinese people too. Gary, you started dealing with uh, 
some people out in China too, right? I remember it. So. We're buying uh, several products from directly from China now. But yeah. like you said, they're, they're, we buy them from the manufacturers and they're not licensed products. It's supplies and dice and sleeves and, and things like that. But, so the bad thing is, and I think about it, is this also negatively impacts the, the business owner in China who's legitimate, who's literally just trying to make his own product. Because I got to tell you, when I first started getting emails from China going, hey, we want to sell you these dice, these sleeves, these whatever it is that they are making themselves, um, you know, because we're looking into getting some, some sleeves done for the store, right? And most of the stuff comes out of there. Um, initially, for me, it's like, oh, man, I don't know. Do I want to deal with somebody in China? Really? It's about the same as, like, I don't know, um, the Moroccan princes. And the Nigerian prince. The Nigerian prince. There you go. So um, it affects those legitimate businesses in these areas that are getting impacted by the counterfeiters, basically. Hmm. So what's the solution? Let's figure it out right now. If big companies could have figured out a solution to counterfeiting, then, oh my gosh, they'd have done it a long time ago. Yeah, I know Um, that they... It's too easy. It's just, it's ridiculously easy. There are lots and lots of websites that you can go on, get a direct relationship with somebody in China, um, that it's in a protected manner. So you're, you know, they don't get paid until you get your product. You know, they hold that money in escrow and, uh, you're going to buy a whole bunch of fake stuff and you're going to stick it on Amazon under a fake name. And, uh, people are going to buy stuff thinking they're buying it from Amazon, but they're not, they're buying it from you because Amazon sticks everything in a common pool and just grabs one off the top and sends it out. And they're not looking to see whether it's counterfeit or not. They're just grabbing the next one. Yeah, we know that that's commingled inventory. And that is also another big problem when you send something. Uh, again, no disrespect to the Amazon worker, but does he really know the difference between Catan, A, B, or C? It's a barcode to him. And if it's got that right barcode on it, it's scanned. It's a copy of Catan. Where did it come from, right? I mean, uh, you are literally sharing that space with other, if you are sending it to their warehouses. Other sellers, legitimate, not legitimate, you know. Maybe, maybe we should explain a little bit about how fulfillment by Amazon works. Sure. Um, when you, there's a couple of different ways you can buy things from Amazon. You can buy them from, you know, a, a, a store that is listing their stuff through Amazon. Or you can buy them from Amazon themselves um, using what's called fulfillment by Amazon, which is, you know, me as a retailer, I send my product to Amazon. They store it in their warehouse. Uh, and when the customer buys it, Amazon sends it out and they charge a fee for this service. So I, they, I get a little less money, but it's zero work because Amazon does all the work. They store it, they ship it out, they take care of returns, they do all the work. I just make money. Now, the problem is if I send in my copies, it, it is pretty good if, you can, if you're willing to you know, price it at the right thing and accept a small profit. There are some caveats too because you take returns that you're like, what the really or But yes, that's a general gist. Gary's got it right. Right. So if John sends in a, a stack of Ticket to Ride and I send in a stack of Ticket to Ride, they don't keep those two stacks separate. They put them in one big bin of Ticket to Ride. So if the customer gets something that's fake, I mean, they don't know if it came from me, came from John, came from, you know, somebody who, who else did it. They don't know because it's all commingled. And so that adds to the complexity of tracking where's this stuff coming from and who's selling it, right? Um, the easiest way to, to get away with it is you just commingle everybody else and your stuff is just as good as everybody else. So it seems like the answer might be to avoid buying your board games from fulfillment by Amazon, uh, Amazon sellers. 
I'm one of them. <laughs> but yes, as, it's, as always, if you want to be sure, buy it from somebody you can bring it back to and it's going to be there tomorrow. Um, seems like a pretty good idea. <laughs> I, I, I deal with internet commerce. It's a part of what we do. And, and I understand that, right? I mean, in this world and age, um, I, I went around like a nut looking for a, a, an S-Bend cable, um, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, and, and I found that online, right, kind of situation. So I understand that there are why people buy online, that there's no question about it. But, you know, there is a certain amount of like, unfortunately, that also means that yes, you are taking somewhat of a risk when you when you do that. But the answer to your question, Tom, I have no idea how <laughs> you fix this. And, and I hope that somehow, some way they figure out a way to do it. But, um, you know, I, is it gloom and all doom? I don't know, because I mean, obviously you're taking steps. I just don't know what those steps are and what, what they can do, what they can't do. So it is a problem. I think it's going to be an endless race. I think it it's is. basically what it's going to be. It's kind of like the way, you know, currency has been for a hundred years. There's like, they came up with the first edition of the hundred dollar bill. And somebody's like, I could do that. And they made their own hundred dollar bill. And they're like, oh, let's make it a little bit more complicated. And then they, you know, the counterfeiter's like, yeah, I can, I can pull that off. And then, you know, money today is pretty sophisticated. It's got all these plastic polymers and 3D images and, you know, all this kind of anti-counterfeit technology. And it's, it's pretty hard to replicate. And I think that's kind of the progression. I think that games, you know, if things are being counterfeited, they're, the technology will advance. Like people are already trying to solve this problem, right? Like Wayne said, there are companies that will give you a little holographic image that kind of show you that you are the legitimate producer of this, this board game, this product. So I think that's basically what, what's going to happen is that uh, counterfeiters will oh, we got this one. And then the manufacturers will have to come up with another way to, to stay ahead of the game, stay ahead of the, stay ahead of the counterfeiters and make it so that uh, everybody knows which ones are real and which ones aren't. And it's just going to be a, an endless race trying to stay ahead. It's interesting that you also mentioned currency because there are uh, considerably stiff penalties for counterfeiting currency, right? I mean, it's definitely... <laughs> On the other hand, I don't know what happens to you if you start printing, you know, cards against humanity cards. Maybe part of the issue too. I mean, you can do it. You can get away with it currently. Hopefully, that changes too. Yeah, I'm sure if there was a way to actually like make the punishment severe enough to discourage people from doing it and to stop the people who are doing it currently, like uh, if there was a way to actually bring a lawsuit to somebody to a manufacturer in China that was producing counterfeit board games that would actually stick and do something, then like it might actually be a way of putting a stop to it. At least like you know, a, a deterrent anyways, but that, that seems like a long way off. It is, I think. And there's a reason why counterfeit board games are probably not being made in America. Wah, wah. And there's a depressing ending. I know, right? <laughs> so maybe we should have switched the order of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's, as, long as, as long as publishers communicate that, that it is possible to have counterfeit board games, like you know, like uh, like you guys said, it's the vast majority of customers are unaware that this is even happening. Yeah, and I don't think uh, it's it's intentional. Very few cases, I think, of the customer going, "I don't care, this is cheaper." I, I'm sure there's a couple individuals out there that are just bottom line, it's the cheapest price. Don't care if it's fake or not. Um, the reality, I think, is most people. Are yeah, just, most people want to love it. They yeah. want. I mean, it's a, it's their hobby. They want to love it, and they don't want a piece of garbage for their money, no matter how little they pay for it. And they want to support the people who made it. I would yep. think that's yep. probably the majority. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just a matter of educating. And that might be that might be the ultimate solution. As the problem becomes more widespread, more awareness of it, and as yeah. more awareness, people get a little more cautious and go, eh, maybe it's too good of a deal." 
to really be the real. Right. Yeah. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. Is there anything else that uh, you guys wanted to chat about? There were some other topics we were uh, throwing around, but uh, what do you guys think? It all starts with the consumer, right? And we're lucky that we are in an industry that for the most part, and we got our problem children, but for the most part, our customers are happy people when they come in our store. They, yeah. Gary said it. They love the hobby. They love what we do. They support us. They're, you know, and, and they're probably flipping mad when they get a bum copy of something, right? So I think that's the good positive note of this. I, I, we're all in this together. We all are geeks, nerds, whatever you want to call us. Um, and that's ultimately, we want our games. We want our games to be real. And that's probably the end all solution of it. They might burn us a couple of times, but that's about the extent of it. After that, might be a little bit more savvy. So it's a pretty on, good way to awesome. tie a nice little ribbon around it. Yeah. All right, and an, another positive note: school's back, and I'm in a, a small city that has a uh, university and college, and that means more customers for me, and sales are up. Awesome. So, yay! Cool. Do you, uh, you guys have schools around you? Yeah, we got the university, and we have several community colleges and high schools and stuff like yeah. So, you know, it's that as well. Well, for us, there's this really weird lull. I'm like, oh my god, it's back to school. There yeah. went all the money yeah. for textbooks and stuff like that. And then it's like, okay, now we're back to normal. And then there's the ramp up to the holidays, which I think this year is just going to be gangbusters. It's, it's. I mean, there's some good products out there, um, you know, and we're starting to see it already. Um, we're hoping that these big shifts in the industry of like the one distributor, which we talked about, we're going to talk about in another episode about distribution, but uh, we're hoping that quells down a little bit because I mean, Wayne's reported problems, Gary's reported problems. I can tell you we've had some issues, uh, <laughs> you know, so let's hope that settles before Christmas because that's the only bump I see in the road right now to a good holiday season. Well, that's, that's a pretty good place to cut her off here. So let's, uh, let's say our goodbyes and we'll say, uh, save our, future conversations for another show. Good night, everyone <laughs> from Las Vegas. Good night. Good night. Good night from the Peter, Peter Butter dot. Peter Butter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to learn the local slang. Well, that's it for this episode of the Maniverse Podcast. I want to thank my co-hosts for coming on the show and sharing their time and wisdom with us. I want to thank John Coviello, Wayne Middlestead, and Gary Sproul. Thank you very much. As always, it is much appreciated to have you guys on the show with me. All the links to the articles we reference in the podcast can be found in the show notes at maniversesaga.com forward slash MVP 070. If you want to learn more about running a successful and profitable game store, head over to maniversesaga.com and check out the most recent episodes of the Maniverse podcast and the blog. Both are great places to learn some skills that you can use to grow your game business. If you want to take the next step, then I encourage you to look at signing up for a Maniverse Premium account and become an Early Bird Premium member. The Premium membership is where you'll be able to find in-depth courses, guides, and templates for specific strategies for growing your game business. The next major addition to the Premium side is the Facebook Marketing Course. In this course, I'm going to show you how to build up your Facebook page, grow an online community, run Facebook ads that convert people into buyers, and even set up your own chatbot. All that so you can reach more people with your message, get more players in your events, and grow your business. It's one that I'm really excited about, and I know that many of you have been asking about as well. It's currently a work in progress, but if you're serious about growing your game store, it would be great to have you as an early bird premium member. My goal for the premium membership is for it to be your virtual GPS, a treasure trove of resources, shortcuts, and strategies that you can access from anywhere with an internet connection. 
As a listener of the Maniverse Podcast, I want to offer you a special opportunity to secure a lifetime premium membership, only available to loyal listeners of the podcast. Head over to maniversesaga.com forward slash deal, D-E-A-L, and take me up on this. As an early bird member, you get direct access to me if you need to ask questions, and you get to help shape the content within the premium membership. That link again is maniversesaga.com forward slash deal. If you've been considering joining as a premium member, this is your chance to become the core of the Maniverse Saga community, but the offer is limited. I'm going to be pulling the page down in a few days from the published date of this podcast. One more time, that link is maniversesaga.com forward slash deal. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. As always, I want to thank you for being a listener to the Maniverse Podcast. I'm Tom Traplin, and it's been a pleasure being your host. Remember, stay strong, play the game, and we'll talk to you next time.